Pastor Brian Carter and Pastor Jeff Warren represent churches from opposite sides of Dallas, but they've formed a friendship based on all the things that they have in common. And when their hometown has needed unifying voices of leadership today and in the past, these two have stepped up and looked past racial lines, doing pulpit swaps to share differing viewpoints with their congregations, and leading unifying prayer rallies, including one just days ago in front of the Dallas Police Department headquarters. They've been in a lot of conversations with local leaders recently, and Pastor Carter has noticed a real shift in both individuals and corporations. That's my hope, is that we really see change and we gain some advocates and allies. There are people that have never spoken up before that our hope is that they spoke up this time and they won't stop. They will make this a part of how they begin to shape the world for the better. But as he and Pastor Warren point out, we still have a long way to go. I still have people who are surprised when I talk about white privilege. And, you know, that just reveals to me a real, um, again, an ignorance. Uh, I, I said recently, white privilege anecdotally means I can go outside tomorrow morning, go off to work or whatever I'm doing, and not think about the color of my skin all day long. Pastors Carter and Warren joined the Bush Center's Rhonda Houston to have a frank discussion about race today, progress we've made, the challenges still out there, and tangible next steps and policy recommendations. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. So my esteemed colleague here at the Bush Center, Rhonda Houston, who is one of our panelists today. Rhonda, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, AK. Rhonda suggested that we talked to these two gentlemen when we were all brainstorming over who to include in the America at its best issue of The Catalyst, the Bush Institute's online magazine. We were looking for folks who were working to make the world a better place in hard times. Um, And so Rhonda ended up hosting the conversation for The Catalyst. And while that talk touched on race issues, it was really centered around how to cope with a COVID-19 world. Uh, But Rhonda had originally suggested them because of the great work they had done in showing unity in 2016 when Dallas and the nation was struggling with discussions around race and the police after Ferguson and police shootings in Dallas, and there was just a lot going on. And so here we are, a month after the Catalyst conversation on COVID-19, and the world has seemingly totally changed. Or maybe the whole point is that the world hasn't changed. Um, So without further ado, let's talk about it with... Pastor Brian Carter, senior pastor at Concord Church, located in the southern sector of Dallas with a predominantly black congregation. Pastor Carter, thank you for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. And Pastor Jeff Warren is senior pastor at Park City's Baptist Church, located in North Dallas with a predominantly white congregation. Pastor Warren, thank you for being here. Andrew, thank you. It's great to be here. And for those listening that are unfamiliar with Dallas, that north-south divide is, is important and Um, You know, don't just throw it in there for geographic purposes. And I'm sure we're going to touch on that throughout this conversation. But let's kick it off with Rhonda so that she can just pick up right where she left off. Rhonda, take it away. Thanks, Andrew. I will. And I'm going to start out by um, a little bit of a scene setter. Um, We have seen countless videos of police brutality going back. We can go back as um, far as Rodney King in 1991 and even farther than that. We've read countless headlines of 911 being called on Black Americans for going about their daily activities. Um, We've pointed out the statistics that show the racial disparities and inequities in our educational and economic lives. But it feels like we're in a different moment right now and that this moment has the potential to lead to positive changes in a number of areas. What is it that makes this moment different? 
So I'll, yeah, I'll take that, um, Rhonda. I think uh, what I'm seeing in the white community, I'm seeing a lot more white uh, people involved. Uh, for years, I've been challenging people in positions like mine, uh, white pastors and others, to get involved, jump in the fray. Uh, I don't think this is going to, we're going to get where we want to be uh, without the white voice, without without leaders. And some of you heard my story that, you know, Dr. King is the one who called me out along with others. Uh, when he way back when he wrote a um, letter from his letter from Birmingham jail. And uh, he calls out the white moderate who is a white person in a place, a position to bring influence and, and yet staying on the sidelines. And he says the problem is not the KKK. The problem is not the white supremacist group, the white citizens council at the time. He said the problem is the white moderate. So that that has been what I'm encouraged by. So many more white people, people of color, uh, involved this time around. Yeah, and I would say similar. I, I believe that I think the tragic death of George Floyd and the manner in which he died, uh, with that being replayed on our minds, has seemed to have been a rallying point. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that it would take this many occurrences for us to get here, but it seems as though, for whatever reason, George Floyd's death has has seemed to sound an alarm across the country. And so not only the country, but you've seen protests across the world. And so perhaps it's a combination of the tragedy of his death and perhaps it's the timing that really this, many many experts predicts the next generation is 50 to 60% uh, minority. And so you have a, a collision that have grown up in a different world. And perhaps this next generation is saying this it's, it's, it's too long for this to continue happening. And then we've never seen corporate America step into this space. But mm-hmm. I think the last 10 years, social justice has become such a part of the culture, particularly with millennials, that it's almost as though if you're not engaged in bringing about change, if you're not engaged in justice, it almost feels like you are uh, headed the wrong direction. And so perhaps all of this collision between millennials, between the culture, between corporate America, between the tragedy, perhaps it can make a point, a tipping point that can really lead to long-term systemic change. We don't know yet, but it's our hope because more conversations and there's more engagement perhaps than we've ever seen before. So I think, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people have been doing a good amount of reflection after George Floyd's killing. And that includes myself. Um, Rhonda and I were talking earlier and she asked me, what about this is different for you? And I think it's important that we all look at ourselves honestly. So, you know, with with that in mind, the answer that I am really not proud of is that at first it wasn't that different. It was something bad happening to someone else in another city. And it was just part of the news cycle. And there's there's bad news every day. Um, so I'm going to go back to doing my job, talking to my friends, doing whatever else is is going on in my life. And um I'm not proud of that, but something about this tipped the scales and made it so that people like me who were able to finally pay attention. And I'm not, I'm not proud that it took a tipping point for me to pay attention, um, but it did get there. So in your view, what about this got us to that necessary point where we all finally really did pay attention to what is a real issue that's been happening for a very long time? I think... A nine-minute slow death with a knee on the neck, I think it's probably one of the most devastating things we could ever see or imagine. I think the images, I think the fact that we saw officers watch and no one seek to really render aid, 
I think it broke us. I think the tragedy of the, of the manner in which he was killed has called us all to, to really ask questions um, uh, based on him forging a check. I mean, things just didn't add up. And so my hope is that it really, I think it left us all disturbed. And so the process that have happened, the engagement that has happened, maybe it's because we've seen and been here so many times and our hope is that we don't want to live in a world where that's okay. And, and so, I mean, that's my hope. My hope is that it's challenging all of us. And then like you, I'm, I'm it's disappointed that it's taken so many, but perhaps we've gotten to a point as a culture where we, we're not comfortable with injustice and we feel, we feel bothered to say, I have to be involved. Our world has to be better than this. I don't want my children grow up in a world where this is the norm. We don't know, but perhaps it is that time, that one moment in history that we'll look back and say, I remember when those changes happened. I think this is, uh, this is the key, this is a key moment. I think we're all feeling that. This is a sense that this is different. Well, let's not let this slide. Let's not this, let this slip. So Pastor Carter and I are trying to look at and, and, and guide people towards real change. I know a lot of people are thinking that way and grateful, but uh, it is sad. Um, it's something this explicit would finally engage the white community more than it has in the past. This is not new. When I when I heard about this, I thought this is Eric Garner all over again. This is 2014. Um, and for, for the black community, um, you know, you look back, you got, you know, Mike Brown, Ferguson. I mean, before that, you got Trayvon Martin. What was noted earlier, you've got a group of millennials, even Gen Z, even more so. Trayvon Martin was born in 95. So he he, you know, we've got a whole generation of people who have grown up uh, with this kind of, um, you know, brutality that we've seen throughout a generation. And so and it's not new to, to others, but I think it's so, so explicit in this case, you can't walk away. Uh, you know, what I get so often as, as I step into this space is, hey, Jeff, wait. You know, our first our first response is not one of lament of sadness. And as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you know, the Bible tells us that when when one part of the body or anyone else suffers, we all suffer. So the first reaction should always be one of lament and sadness, uh, just to be human and to say this is not the world we want to live in. Uh, it, it's sad that um, that it took something so explicit in this case, you can't say, hey, let's wait on the details. Let's wait on the judicial process to run its course. Let's wait on, Jeff, don't jump out there so quickly. Um, okay, uh, no, I think uh, we've all watched this man die right in front of us. And this this has sparked, as we've noted, sparked a change in the hearts of people. Now we got to talk about what, what true systemic change looks like. And so in leading your congregations, um, through this, there are there are so many voices out there. There are so many, um, you know, if you go online, you hear, you know, you, you, you can hear any kind of voice that you want to hear, right, on any, on any side of, of, of the issues. And so in leading your congregations, how do you, how do you lead your congregations? How do you talk um, these issues through um, with your congregations? Because you both represent and, and lead so many people. Um, how are you leading through this? <laughs> I'd say I'd say very delicately. How about that? Um, there's this mix for on the on the white side, which is, of course, my experience. Um, I'm encouraged by so many people who are who are with me and for me. And we got you back. 
Um, but even of late, uh, how about as early as this morning? You know, I get I get hit up uh, with uh, emails and such with people who aren't in my church necessarily, but now know of of my involvement and such. So, uh, you know, racism is alive and um, it comes hard. Uh, and when you have racism, it means, you know, if you if you come against oppression, it means there's an oppressor. There's someone who is in charge who doesn't want to lose you know that spot. People talk about white fragility. There's a there's a fragileness of that when your position is being uh, taken, you know, if you will. So I get all that, and it's so complicated. What happens now that I'm seeing is in this uber polarized culture that we live in, that the narrative is hijacked quickly. And so what I'm seeing, I've said, you know, I've stated that Black Lives Matter. I'm aware that it wasn't long after the hashtag came out that the the movement was hijacked um, by a, what some could argue is a much more would argue is a more fringe element, you know, within the movement. But now Black Lives Matter, we're changing street names, you know, we're painting it on streets, and everybody's saying it, you know, as a Christian. I hear people say Jesus is Lord and he's not Lord of their life at all, but that's not going to keep me from saying that he's Lord. So, you know, we're, I think we, we need to speak clear. We need to speak the truth. Uh, I've said that, that you can't say all lives matter until you say black lives matter. And, uh, and I get it. So that's the kind of thing people want to come back at me and, you know, what about this? What about that? And we just want to, we want to really you know, be so critical about every little bit of it. But my question is, what are you doing to fight injustice? And and what are you doing to come against racism? And when someone doesn't have a question or an answer to that question, though they've got all kinds of answers as to how I'm doing it, uh, I want to say, I like my way better than your way. If you're not involved, I like my my way better than yours. <laughs> Yeah, I think both of us lead a continuum of people. I mean, in any of our church, in any context, as you mentioned, you can find whatever your ear wants to hear. You can find someone that's that's portraying that perspective. And so as leaders of, of a vast congregation, both of us are trying to manage, you know, what is the middle ground? What's the common ground that we can find that we can help move the, the church forward with? knowing that there are people on both ends. So one of the things I've tried to do a lot in this season is listen. I, I had a, we had a session with some community activists um, to hear where they are in terms of what are their demands? What are they expecting from the protesters, from the march? What are their end goals? We had had some chance to visit with some business owners, some some teenagers, uh, some seniors that that were that fought this fought this fight many years ago and so i've had a chance just to listen to a lot of people and then out of that try to communicate where where god is leading me in my heart as a leader as a pastor based on my own journey based on my own experience will it will i ever satisfy people no i mean there are those that that are incredibly uh, frustrated and hostile and have every right to be so based on how they've been treated in their context and based on their experiences being black in America. There are those that have been more isolated to some degree. And so I've had to figure out how do I manage both of these and then call us to a point where we can say, what does change look like? And how do we get there? And how do I, as, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, how do I become a part of the problem? There are those that are tired of even having conversations. They don't want to talk. 
They said, listen, I've talked and talked and talked. They're not listening. I'm moving. And there are others that are thankful that now in corporate America or in other spaces, they can now have conversations they haven't had before. And so it's a huge continuum. I think ultimately, as was mentioned, the goal is how can we bring about change? Now, we all know where, where there may, we may have different destinations, but how do we bring about change in a way that the world can be better, that there can be more injustice, that we can deal with these inequities and these systemic racist, racial challenges that have burdened our country and burdened Blacks in America? Well, then let's get specific. We're the Bush Institute's a policy center, so let's talk about policy. What do you think needs to change? You know, I think that we've tried to encourage people in the life of our church or in others that they're really, I mean, there are multiple categories, but first and foremost, criminal justice. But there ought to be, there has to be some reform in terms of how we do the criminal justice system. Uh, Policing, training, uh, there's a lot of conversation around what that looks like in terms of de-escalating situations, in terms of uses of force. So there has to be, but not, not only from the policing standpoint, but then you get to the sentencing. You get to the trials and you discover that people of color are sentenced more, get more severe sentences. So you've got to look at that from from a perspective. I think um, Michelle Singatory in her book, The New Jim Crow, does a phenomenal job helping us to unpack some of the challenges or the film, The 13th on Netflix, helps us understand how the criminal justice system for years from its foundation has has mistreated uh, African-Americans and people of color. So you have the criminal justice system in one respect. Then you got the educational system. I mean, historically there are inequities in the educational system where many of us understand that it's tragic when a child's zip code determines the quality of their life. And many of that's related to the quality of education that they need. So everything from school funding, everything from uh, academic standards and social support services that students need in certain communities, highly qualified teachers, but every school system has to be asking the question, how are we pursuing racial equity? And then from a political space, we have to look at it politically and say, a lot of the reasons that we are in this situation is because of policies. It, were, it was the historic policies that redlined communities and prevented people, African-Americans, from living in certain neighborhoods, having access to certain loans. It was, it was policies that built highways through neighborhoods or excluded certain communities by the placement of highways. So we have to look at policies around voting, around substandard housing, around policies that can help reshape our communities and our cities so that our cities can have transportation and grocery stores and housing and quality retail and broadband connectivity and jobs with a livable wage. It just makes no sense that for some of us to still be dealing with food deserts and healthcare deserts. So that's one challenge. And then the last, the next one is economic. We got to look at, okay, if 98% of the wealth sits in white America, then how do we help build up generational wealth in the black community? How do we support Black-owned business? How do we provide access to capital? How do we help banks to support entrepreneurs and those? How do we help corporate America to engage and hire Black executives and put Blacks on the boards? I mean, people of color on the boards of corporations so that there's not just an afterthought, but it's a way of shaping the culture. And then lastly, in the health. Health disparities are huge in many of our cities. In Dallas alone, between two parts of the city, there's a 22-year lifespan gap 
between where you live, where you live, what your zip code is. And that's that's indicative of the fact that we've got to think through how do we provide access to health health care, access to healthy food. How do we build a community so it has the options so that they can have the quality of life, mental health desires? So those are just five areas, criminal justice, education, political, economic, health. We could talk about more, but all of those are systems that if a person wants to get engaged, they can get engaged in whatever space that they feel like they can make an impact in. Well, and when I hear that list, I don't hear anything that makes me say, well, well, that can't happen. It all sounds reasonable and doable. So where where do we stumble in actually getting that done? And why hasn't this happened already? Yeah, so we've challenged people uh, even as late as this weekend. I heard Pastor Carter say it to a crowd on Sunday, find your lane. Um, you know, it's just uh, we said that, you know, empathy is the pathway to peace and maybe apathy is is keeping us from getting involved. You know, what's it going to take? We started the whole podcast with that. What would it take? Uh, find your lane, get involved. We have people in our church who are involved in a, a school that's primarily made up of immigrants um, in one of the most highly dense, you know, areas in all of Dallas, over in the Victory area, if you know Dallas at all. And uh, we have seen a school, Jackville Elementary, go from uh, a school that was in trouble at the lowest uh, of the scale to become a blue ribbon school over the past five years. The principal, um, uh, Principal Barrios, would say that uh, it is it is in large part, and I won't be too 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 prideful here. Uh, she would say it's because our church was involved in mentoring, stepping in, making a difference, and. So that's one lane that we can get into. We've had uh, business owners, a restaurateur, for instance, who who came alongside one of uh, Pastor Carter's, you know, a young black entrepreneur, restaurateur, come alongside him and help him, help guide him to say, hey, here's what I've learned along the way. I've seen that take place with small groups of men that we've had from our church, his church. Uh, I was with a group not too long ago, continues to meet every Friday, even by way of Zoom right now during this season and they're helping one another, but it goes both ways. The white guys would say, man, the black guys are helping me more than I'm ever helping them, you know, in life and as a family or as a husband. But uh, we're seeing so much of that. We're involved in, uh, you know, helping those who come out of prison to get their feet back on, uh, you know, back, back on the the street and out and get jobs. And, and uh, so we're seeing a lot of good things happen in that way. Find your lane is, is the thing. Find your place. Because as he mentioned, all those areas, so we're, we're, we're there. You're there somewhere. You're involved in there in, in that somewhere. But it's not always easy. I mean, you know, I, I think as Pastor just said, there's, there are ways and there are people that are engaged. But I mean, some of these are systems, you know, I mean, some of these are deeply entrenched parts of the city that have been neglected for so long that. Yes, the person may come in and help the school, which is phenomenal, but we also need the businessmen to come in and transform the community, build mm-hmm. some housing, tear down some stuff that should have been torn down a long time ago, and you've left it up for subpar living. I mean, and so there, there are, there is infrastructure. Give us some job, provide some job. Where are the companies? Where are the corporations? And a lot of times what happens in many of our cities, when racism, when it was entrenched in the system, when parts of the city were excluded, by the policy, by how it was designed, it takes a lot of work to transform that. And so you need real courageous and bold leaders at city government, in the community, in the faith community, that are willing to say, listen, we must change this. We can no longer 
neglect this part of the city the way that we have. And so it's not, it's not easy. And that's often why some people forget about it. And so they go on, live their lives. And then they say, well, they just didn't pull themselves up. They just didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't work hard enough. They didn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But what they didn't understand, they were put in a, in a, they were put in a deficit from the very beginning. And so it's not the same as everyone else's playing ground, play field. I think that's so important to understand uh, is, is history. And we, we say empathy is the pathway to peace. But before empathy, there's a real ignorance that's got to be broken down. And that's not an excuse, but there need, we need education. Um, we need to talk. And I'm talking about the white community needs to be educated uh, in regard to to the black experience. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, you're probably not going to learn it in your history books Though it's there. I mean, we should be reading. We should be learning more because there's a reason. I think white people, a lot of white folks can look and say, well, wow, there's the impoverished, you know, black community or the zip code there, here or there. And wow, that's that's tough. Those people, how come they can't? Yeah, step it up. And it's, you know, I've heard it described recently. It's like running, a, let's say running a hundred meter dash and the, the white person starting at the 50. Um, you know, that's what people don't want to hear about white privilege. White privilege doesn't mean that you haven't had trouble, that you haven't worked hard. It means that you started at the 50 and, you know, meter marker and you ran, you ran hard. But our brother from from the starting line is is coming up behind you, you know, or uh, I mean, there's a lot of analogies there. But what we see in Dallas, for instance, a lot of people don't know. Uh, I've, I've often started with this October 23rd. Uh, it was 19, no, October 24th, 1923 was KKK Day at the, at the State Fair of Texas. It's still one of the largest attended days of the State Fair. 150,000 people were there. Now, now that wasn't, that, that, that's not 100 years ago. And, and at the time, uh, arguably the most racist city in America. You had two out of every three eligible white men were a part of the KKK. These men were in government. They're making decisions. These people are, you know, they were they were in places of leadership. And so during that time, you had uh, you know so much of the redlining that, uh, that that would not allow for loans among black businesses, black people. Uh, and so there's so many systemic issues that people are unaware of that have placed people of color in certain areas and have allowed them then force them to be behind. And, and I think a lot of white people don't know the history there and wonder why, why they're having so much trouble. I mean, as if racism ended with, you know, the civil rights movement or laws that were, that were uh, policies that were brought about as a result, as if there was a date on the calendar that that, that kind of thing ended. And so everybody's at the same level now and why can't they step up? And that's, that's just not, not the case. Now, you can say, okay, Jeff, thank you very much for that little history lesson. There's so much more than that. But we look back and we can see why we're here today. And so uh, I think it's so important to understand that and that have an attitude or a mindset that would change in your perspective change when you understand uh, why things are the way they are. So, so what kind of, you know, so much talk of restitution, um, what kind of things can we do? And it's what Pastor Carter talked about. Uh, we need to those who are in places of influence, business leaders, hiring out of those areas and communities and helping to bring businesses into those areas. But we need policy change. So you make policies that can change and then behavior will follow. Uh, you know, we're in the behavior. We're, we're not we're not so much in behavior modification, you know, uh, work, but we are looking to see the transforming 
uh, uh, nature of God's work in the hearts of people. And that's where it starts. We know that. We know that the gospel is what changes the heart and changes life. We believe that. Um, however, policy change systems. And so when you change a policy, the change of behavior will follow because that's law now. And now, I mean, that, that's where we need to, to, to get to now. So I wish I'd written down who wrote this, but there was a tweet a few days ago that I saw that, that really hit home with me. And it was written by a white guy. And he was saying, you know, I used to go to parties and tell this story. I'd gotten detained because I had a counterfeit $20 bill. And I told this story as a funny thing that happened to me once. Uh, but that isn't a funny story to George Floyd. That got him killed. Mm. And this guy, this tweet was reflecting on that. And it, it really shows that racism isn't always this overt, obvious thing that you see happening on the street. Like, oh, there's some racism. I'll go, I'll go intervene. It's just this entirely different life experience that some people who walk this earth have. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that, that was a great tweet by the SMU professor. He was sharing his story about his own ex same experience that George Ford went through. And so, I mean, studies have shown that even your name on a resume impacts the more your name can be categorized either a white name or a black name impacts your hiring uh, eligibility and so it, it's there whether it's implicit bias or outright discrimination it shows up it shows up over and over again whether you're how your experience with police shows up there it shows up your experience when you're in a store whether they follow you or not it shows up in terms of whether you're the only one that's in a classroom or in a business setting it shows up when you go to get a loan from a bank for people of color, it is an everyday experience of life. And I think sometimes we think we've gotten so much further along, but we're just 54 years away from 1965. I mean, this is, this is within a generation. And so we're not that far removed when it was much more obvious. It's still present. It's just we don't talk about it. We pretend it is not there, but the impact that it's having in the lives of people of color is tremendous. You can look at the disparities across the space, whether it's health disparities, whether it's economic disparities, whether it's a quality of life disparity, it's there. It's just that we think we're more removed than we really are. And we still have a lot of work to do to allow everyone to really have access to the American dream that we so desire to be. I still have people who are surprised when I talk about white privilege. And, you know, that just reveals to me a real... Um, Again, an ignorance. Uh, I, I said recently, white privilege anecdotally means I can go outside tomorrow morning, go off to work or whatever I'm doing and not think about the color of my skin all day long. Uh, and that's my life. I don't think about the color of my skin. And yet the, the people of color do every day, essentially. Uh, if you, you know, if you, if you show up in, in the white space, I mean, you are. And so, uh, yeah, I'm still surprised. It takes a lot of educations, a lot of education, and a thousand conversations like this. So it's good. And I would think it's it's uncomfortable. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that we probably have not made the progress we desire. It's uncomfortable. I mean, to hear the kind of conversations that Pastor Jeff has at his church. I mean, I've watched this, as he mentioned. Part of it is becoming informed. I mean, whether it's reading key books. I mean, it's amazing to watch Netflix and Prime. I mean, all these different networks are now have a whole section called Black Lives Matter. And it's basically, it's a collection of resources on black history, which we have ignored. And we now have to figure out how do I get educated on the plight of what it means 
so that now I can understand and have conversations, but it's just not comfortable. It's much easier just pretending everything is okay. We're in a post-racial world. We had a black president. We've got to be in a better place. But it, that's just not reality. That's just not reality. And so I think it's important. I think one of the best things listeners can do is to get educated. Start reading material, start watching quality, and start gaining, start having conversations. I think one of the challenges we've seen in some of this space is that for some people that have begun to share their opinions, it's obvious they don't have people of color around them or in their space. Mm. You know, even corporations that have tried to write statements, you can say to yourself, listen, that, that was a good try. <laughs> but but you probably need a focus group. Let's let's gather some people in the room. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's hard, but let's figure out what our stance is, what we stand for. I mean, and let's let's figure out. And so I think having come, even if the conversation don't end well, even if we we don't have to agree on everything, but let's at least acknowledge this is the reality for this is the reality for people of color. This is a reality for white America. And let's try to figure out where do we go from here. But I think it's crucial. Let's do a lot of listening, a lot of learning, a lot of conversation. And let's not stop the conversation. Let's keep them going to help us get to a better place. That's so good. I So I have um, what, what, what Pastor Carter said earlier, you know, this is a time for the white person to listen and to listen well. He's, he's noting he, he's listening well, and he is. It's a time for us to listen. Um, I love the, uh, you know, the story of the Good Shepherd in the Bible, uh, someone noted recently that you had the, you know, the 99 sheep and he leaves all 99 to go after the one. And, and then all the other 99 sheep are holding up. Hey, all, all sheep matter. You know, <laughs> he's running after the one, all sheep matter. He said, no, 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 no. The one who is, who is in need right now, the one who needs to be lifted up, the one who needs to be, be brought into the family. That's the one I'm going after. And he's in essence saying, hey, listen, you, you, you need to listen. You need to step aside right now. It's, it's like the older brother, if, if the listeners know the story of the prodigal son, prodigal son comes home, then the older brother, basically, he won't join the party. He says, hey, I've been, I've been here all along. You know, what about me? And the father says, I mean, literally, he says, hey, it's not about you right now. It's not about you. And I think it's time for white people to step back in this cultural moment and say, it's not about you right now. It's not about me. I need to listen well. I need to learn. And so we need to teach our children. One of the things we're doing, we have, we have links on our website where we're, we have a whole page on how you can engage in racial reconciliation and social justice. And one of the areas is, is, is books you can read for your kids and for kids to learn about black history, kids to learn from black authors about stories of black people. That's something that we've got to do a better job of. And again, there's another generation coming up behind us and they're going, that's, that's my world. That's what I live in. So I'm hopeful for, because of that. And so you, I, I think both of you have, have slightly um, touched on my next question, but you know, we're, we, we've talked about listening, acknowledging, learning, um, and, and the policies that need to be changed. And, but there are people behind the policies, right? And so you can't legislate how someone feels in their heart or what someone believes. So how do we, how do we get at the heart of, of people to um, have them open up um, in order to receive everything that we've been discussing for the past half hour? I mean, we're, we're people of faith and we know that faith has already been a big part of the Bush Center. I mean, faith for us shapes everything. And so for us, it is our faith in God that then 
prepares our heart to be able to live out what Christian love ought to look like. And so from our context, from our vein, we don't believe there's anything else that can change the human heart outside the gospel, but it is this and our faith in God that helps us to be able to say right is right and wrong is wrong. Now we have to be careful because even the church historically and people of faith historically were the perpetuations of slavery were, were also practice, practice racism in the church. So we know we all have work to do. I mean, this is, this is, and so this, but, but our hope is that when you have a relationship with God, it then guides you, it then directs you, it then shapes you. But it also does that in the context of community, which means that you can't do this on your own, but it's in the, in the fabric of a faith community that you then have the support you need, the accountability that you need, the models that you need. I mean, we have a long, we've been dealing with this problem for Black Americans for 400 years, but longer than that, it's in the scriptures. So forth. I mean, it's been around a long time. I mean, human, the human heart is, 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 is failed and fractured. And so we're going to have our issues. But at some point, people have to say, if you're really going to love somebody else, if you're going to care for someone else, then you're going to have to figure out how to value that person for who they are rather than their skin color or any other attributes. You have to. So it's it's really the heart. That's where it starts. Because you're right. We got to make policy change. But until the heart is changed, you don't really see all the changes that are needed and necessary. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of an experience I had the other day where um, I went up to check out the scene here in Dallas when President Trump came through. And, um, and there were people there to show their support of President Trump and other people there to show their support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, parking was a good, you know, mile or so away from the actual protest. And so I ended up walking and chatting with this lady that I met along this walk. And we we're chatting and we had some similar viewpoints. And when we got close to the protest, we came across a TV camera. And the reporter pulled aside another lady to interview her. And she was wearing a T-shirt that expressed her viewpoint, who she was supporting. Um, and who it was is neither here nor there and not really relevant to the story. But the lady I was with, who I had really had a nice conversation with, had this visceral reaction to the T-shirt and was like, oh, she should be embarrassed. And, and I didn't say anything. But but thinking back on it, what I should have said is, you know, that's not helpful either. And that we're, we're passing judgment on this person based solely on the T-shirt they put on that morning. And, um, you know, that's the only the only thing that we know about them. And so how do we get to a place where we're, where we're bridging this gulf that's just gotten so wide and I don't know, you know, live closer to judge not lest ye be judged. Mm. I think, you know, again, back to what Pastor Carter was saying as people of, of faith, we truly believe that God's the one who transforms a human heart. I mean, it's way back in the first uh, chapter of Genesis, we see that all people are created in the image of God. Um, all of us. And we, we, we could argue there's only one race, human race. And so that, that's foundational that we, we see each other as, as equal from the start, all created by God in his image uh, for his purposes. And so when you see another individual, when you see another person, you, you should know that going in. And that's, you don't have to be Christian to, to you know, have that mindset. Um, so everyone, you, you know, it's true. Everyone, every life matters. Uh, every person is loved. And so, but as people of faith, again, and, and Christians distinctively, uh, because you have pastors here on this podcast, you know, we believe that because of the love of Christ, he changes the heart of the person. So by his grace, 
you know, undeserved favor and love. I am changed. And he's rescued me from myself. And when I have people tell me, um, you know, hey, just stick to the gospel. You know, why, why are you involved in all these other things? Uh, you know, as if there's an implications free gospel uh, that as if the message of the church is just, you know, get saved and then get beamed up to heaven sometime, you know, like and then the rest of your life. You're just living in a concourse like you're at the airport. You're just waiting on your flight. And um, and that's not the gospel. The gospel imper- uh, permeates all of life, but it begins with that heart change. And then I can love others with the grace, the same grace that's been extended to me. I can I like to say I can outgrace others. So those I dis- disagree with. Somebody's wearing a shirt I don't like, T-shirt, and I make judgments about them in my mind. I'm going to outgrace that person. I'm going to love them because I think in the end, it's an act of faith to say that love is going to win the day. And so what um, what next when um, the protesters go home, when the the news cycles change the lead story? Um, what What's next? How do we keep this this energy um, that is going in this moment? How do we keep that energy going so that we can affect the positive change that we're all rooting for right now? I think reform has to happen initially. I mean, I think a lot of states, cities, nationally, they're looking at reform measures for policing. And I think that's a good place to start. I think um, the, the, the use of that kind of hold needs to be banned. There are several things from a policing standpoint. There's a lot of conversations about funding. Do we put funds in policing? Do we put funds in the community? Is it both? Do we need to start funding homelessness and mental health and communities and education? So I, I think the conversations that are happening now are critical. I don't know where we're going to end up, but my hope is that this moment is a moment that is redeemed for the good of all of our cities and communities, that there is some good, there's some politics that come both from the policing side, but also in terms of how we serve our communities. Because often, where there, high, where there is high crime, there's also um, probably some of our lower-performing schools, also some of, some of our lower-provided lower, uh, economically community. And so we've got to look at how do we serve, how do we transform the community and not just over-police certain situations. Even mm. the, I think it has to move from policing, then it has to move to the whole matter of sentencing. And how those things are handled and, and how we deal with those things in the court system. So my hope is that this, this particular issue that deals with policing and criminal justice will help us to make the changes we need to make, but will also flow into other avenues of our lives as everyone. These corporate uh, America, these corporate corporations that are making statements about Black Lives Matter, we hope that you not only made a statement, but you have an action plan and a strategy. Um, and, uh, and just like you have a business plan, what's your plan for racial equity in your corporation so that you can begin to enact that? So that's that's my hope is that we really see change and we gain some advocates and allies. There are people that have never spoken up before that our hope is that they spoke up this time and they won't stop. They will make this a part of how they begin to shape the world for the better. That is that's excellent. Uh, I don't know how to add to that other than uh, you've asked the right question, Rhonda, the key question. How do we sustain this? That, those are conversations we'll continue to have. I know Pastor Carter and I will have. We'll meet with a group of pastors tomorrow again at uh, every Wednesday as we pray together these days on the phone. 
and we're going to talk about what are what are next steps. That's what I'm hearing now, or what are the action steps? What are we going to do? How are we going to bring about change? But again, the challenge I know on the, this is on both sides, but on on my on the white side, if you will, we we seek to bring systemic change within policies, and and yes, now you're stepping into to politics and government. Um, people say, you know, don't get political. Well, now Jesus was political. I mean, he spoke truth to power. He he sought systemic change in, in across <laughs> across culture. But that's what is really challenging. I want to encourage all of those white leaders who are listening, in particular, white pastors and white business owners. You've got to stay in the mix, and you've got to have a plan, as Pastor Carter noted, um, because the the too often now the narrative gets hijacked and what i mean just in just one case one scenario immediately uh we started to see defund the police you know i was speaking at a prayer rally a couple of weeks ago with pastor carter a gal made her way to the front i'm speaking and she had a sign and it was a prayer rally primarily and and uh and she in the sign said pray and then it said and hashtag abolish the police right and so I know when a lot of folks hear that, it's like, what? Abolish the police? What's that look like? That's anarchy, you know, and, and I get that. But, but what happens is instead of looking more deeply at, say, a city budget, talk to city council, what we've been doing to say, how can we bring about some change? Instead, too often, the narrative gets hijacked, defund the police. Who's against the police? We've said, listen, we are, we're pro-blue, we're pro-black, we're pro-everyone. People polarize too quickly. We've got to think more with, with greater wisdom about these things. And it's not a simple, I'm going to run to my far right or far left side of this thing. We've got to get in, listen, and together to help shape and form policies that can really make a difference. There needs to be reform. There's, there's no question because public safety comes in a lot of different forms. It's not simply, well, we need now 100 police in that area instead of 20. No, why is there such crime? Can we bring some funds in order to help people who are dealing with mental health, help in the homeless homeless area? See, that there's, there's so much. We've learned through this crisis that um, the disparities have been uh, just brought to the forefront, as Pastor Carter noted. We, you know, we were initially, kids were out of school and then, well, what's online? Well, what if you don't have what if you don't have broadband internet access in your zip code? You're, I mean, those are the kinds of things that we're seeing. How can we bring some funds that way? So I would just say that real quick to the lay person, if you will, uh, to defund the police doesn't mean we're not for police. It means that that there are other areas that could potentially, you know, uh, really be. Uh, be helped and and less crime could be the result for with, with fewer police needed in these areas if we rethink some of how we're dispersing those funds. Well, we just saw this a few days ago in Atlanta uh, with the Rayshard Brooks situation, and and he was intoxicated, asleep in his car at a Wendy's drive through, and one route is the care route. What's going on in this guy's life? They ended up asleep in his car at a drive through. How do we get him some help? How do we get him home? And, and the other route is the police route, which in this case, tragically escalated and, and Brooks ended up dead. In an alternate universe, what policies could have gotten us to a different outcome in, in situations like that one? Well, and also, you know, even there, good point. So we've had Pastor Carter and I with our pastors group, we, we've had, you know, Chief Brown, we've had Chief Hall, 
more recently, uh, you know, to speak and to, and to pray over and to think and to talk about how can we help as pastors? What do we need to know? One of the things that we've seen among the police, um, you know, I think social workers, for instance, could help when you have, say, say a mental health. Uh, what if there's someone who's suicidal or, or there's some mental health issue? We could train social workers to help in those particular areas if there's not a firearm involved. And you've got then uh, fewer need, less need for police. When we've talked to police, they feel like they're having to do everything. And, and they have met those kinds of ideas with, yes, we can't do all things. Should there have been someone other than a police uh, to be called and, and to come to address a situation like that? You know, perhaps I think our police are are just overwhelmed with all that they're doing. There's a different way to come about public safety, I think, to bring the help that our police need. Well, right before we hit record, I told y'all that we'd take up about 30 minutes of your time, and here we are 45 minutes later and, and still going. <laughs> so I, I apologize for that. that um, so, you know, let's wrap up. But we can't let you go without getting you to tackle our usual interview closer, which is, what are we not talking enough about that we should be talking more about? Um, we asked this question actually last season on an episode to Byron Sanders, CEO of Big Thought. And without pausing, right away he said systemic racism and gave this really passionate, beautifully thought out answer. And and, so, and months later, here we are. And um, so we really should have been, been listening to him all along. So what, what do y'all want to add onto this subject, or really any subject that we need to be focused on tackling together? And, um, you know, whoever wants to go first, go for it. And, and whoever doesn't be thinking about what your answer should be. Well, I'm so what comes to my mind quickly is, is more on a personal note, I guess. Uh, we're here because uh, Pastor Carter and I sought to get to know each other. You know, I, I've come to love him as a brother. He's a, he's a father like I am. He's a, he's a husband like I am. He's a, he's a son. He's, a, you know, he's a friend. And um, that happens in relationships. We say the gospel, you know, the good news that we're all about as pastor, as believers, pastors uh, and, and all believers, uh, the gospel travels at the speed of relationships. And so what we need to do is, is talk about how to connect people uh, in relationships, to be proactive, to get to know others um, who don't look like you. And you learn their story and you learn the history um, of 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 a people that you wouldn't know otherwise. So that would be my great challenge for the listeners is to be proactive. People say, how did you guys get to know each other? And, you know, the quick answer is we had lunch together and, and we can all do something like that. I'm finding myself in these days, I would say again, to the white person, people of, uh, you know, in positions of, of influence and privilege, watch for opportunities to, to bless. We've been blessed to be a blessing uh, and that can happen today. I, you know, now when I'm seeing a black brother or sister person, uh, I want to I want to let them know I love them. I don't even know. Them. I'm going to I'm going to hold the door for them. I'm going to say hi to them. I want to smile and let them know they matter. I'm going to speak to them. It's something we can all do every day. I would just say that it's all about uh, relationships. Let's look for opportunities to develop deeper and better relationships with each other. You know, this is the big topic of the day, but is there something that we're not talking about that we should be talking about? No, I, I think just the conversation around racism in America, I think, is an important conversation. I mean, I think I think to have the courage to begin to talk about it, I think is crucial because I think people are really struggling to figure out what to do. I mean, I'm talking to pastors, we're talking to 
business leaders, we're talking to just concerned citizens. It is a, an incredibly important topic because everyone's trying to figure out what does this mean for me? And I think the thing I've learned or what I'm learning is that everyone can play a part from my person, from, from broadening my, my circle, <laughs> from the people that I have dinner with, lunch with in my home, to the people I go out with, to, to the, my children's wife, until the relationship with my children's friends, cultivating those of diversity, to who I do business with, to where I spend my money at. Do I have to always spend it in the same circle? Like, can I also broaden that as well to a more diverse circle? Um, to what I do for enjoyment or, or, or where I go to church, you know? I mean, I think there's, there's something that every, I think the more that we can broaden our perspective, and here's the thing, it may not always work. It may not, it may not always be a positive experience. I mean, there are some challenges, there, there are parts of all of our cultures that can be challenging, uh, but I think if, as I look at it from where I sit, every single one of us can do something. All of us can broaden. I, I had lunch last week, I was at a program and I sat next to a, a young man that's 20 years old that lives in Highland Park, and we begin, which is one of the more exclusive neighbors in our community. And we never, I, I did, I'd never had a conversation with someone 20 years old. And so it was fascinating for me to kind of understand his world, understand his friends. So that's why I feel like every single person, no matter where you are, having a diverse circle and examining how you do life helps us each to really develop a better, better view, a broader perspective, and uh, helps us to, to value others more. Beautiful. Well, Rhonda, Pastor Carter, Pastor Warren, I've kept you roughly twice as long as I promised I would. So thanks again so much for your generosity of time to record this with us so soon after your last conversation and during a really busy time for you. And look forward to seeing you in person soon. You're Thank welcome. Thank you guys. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. If you want to hear more from Pastor Brian Carter, visit Concord Church's website at concorddallas.org. That's C-O-N-C-O-R-D Dallas.org. And if you want to hear more from Pastor Jeff Warren, visit Park City's Baptist Church at PCBC.org. Pastor Carter recommended a couple of items earlier in the show. You can learn more about the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander at newjimcrow.com. And you can watch 13th on Netflix. Just search for 13TH. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Please share it with a friend, and you can reach out to us at, at the Bush Center on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening.